0: My daughter's 13 months old. Inara, you always think, "Oh yeah, yeah, yeah," and then it happens, and there you are, caught deer in the headlights, and everything they told you is true. And now you've rediscovered the wheel. You know, you're telling everybody what they already know.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs>
0: exactly.
2: Turn your speakers up to 11 because it's time for Too Much Effing Perspective, the podcast that asks musicians and entertainers to relive the most final tap moments when nothing goes right and everything gets kind of weird. I'm your host, Alan Keller, a comedy writer in L.A. and former lead singer of the least heralded Chicago band, The Falling Willendas. And I'm your co-host,
1: Alex Hoffman, former tour manager for Radiohead and former lead singer of the least heralded Milwaukee band, The Vainglorious.
2: Our guest today is Devo co-founder Jerry Casali.
1: We talked to Jerry about the time David Bowie wanted to produce Devo, whether it was true that Richard Branson from Virgin Records tried to get Sex Pistols' Johnny Rotten to sign on as Devo's lead singer, and what Mick Jagger did the first time he heard their amazing cover of Satisfaction.
2: So, without further ado, let's go to the T-M-E-P show. It really puts perspective on things, doesn't it? Not yeah. too
0: much. There's well, too yeah, much perspective
2: now. Alex, have you ever done the Apple replay at the end of the year when they tell you which bands you've listened to the most? Uh, no,
1: Alan, I'm not an Apple Music subscriber. I have an Android phone.
2: Um, Apple Podcast, please disregard what Alex said. <laughs> he's the hugest supporter of Apple. Oh my God, he's like right now wearing a Macintosh right on his head. anyways well i did the apple replay this year at the behest of my older daughter sunny near the top of my list were bands that released new albums that i really love this year like blitz and trapper and the lemon twigs and tmep show guest buck meat with haunted mountain Mm -hmm. but they're also the people who probably make my list of most played bands and artists every year like Bowie and The Who and Steely Dan, music that's not just how I entertain myself, but that's part of who I am, my DNA. There are plenty of bands that we all feel that way about, right, Alex? You must have some.
1: Yeah, there's a range for me as well. The Doors and The Who, but also Kiss and Motley Crue and Violent Femmes, Neil Young.
2: You got a lot of DNA splattering all over the
1: place. <laughs> I'm a veritable crime scene.
2: <laughs> well, I feel pretty lucky today because we're getting to speak with a member of one of those important bands in my life, Jerry Casali from Devo. Devo and I go way back, and I want to retell a pretty incredible story about Devo that I think I may have mentioned a few times on the podcast before, but obviously it will never be more relevant than it is today. Do you mind? I'm all about context, Alan. Go for it. Thank you. So You know, a couple months ago, one of my old, old friends, Phil Hamilton, reached out to me on Facebook and asked me where this photograph was of our gang when we went to see Devo in high school. Now, I had no idea where that photo is. I know exactly what he's talking about. I don't even know what year that concert was. So I went on Google to search it, and I found that Devo played the Oriental Theater in Milwaukee July something or other, 1980. So... I decided I'm gonna go check on YouTube to see if there's any concert footage from that show. So I do that and lo and behold, there's a video that says Devo, New Wave Madness. And in the screen capture is a picture of my high school drummer from my band, Bumstead, Mike Jolton. Cool. And I'm like, holy crap. And he went with us to the concert. So I'm like, are we all in this video? So I play this video. Two minutes and 47 seconds in, there I am wearing what they wore in the video for Jocko Homo. I have swimming goggles, nylon stocking over my face, and a hefty bag. And again, this was July in Milwaukee. It was so freaking hot. So you see the picture that I actually ripped the garbage bag to give me some air because I was suffocating. It was one of the best concerts I've ever seen in my life. And just so remarkable to see this video of me when I was 17 at this great show with my friends. It was really a wonderful gift to happen upon that. I had no idea at all that it existed before looking it up on YouTube.
1: Yeah, that's effing incredible. I mean, it is like opening a time capsule and just seeing yourself there, especially decked out that way. You and your buds were obviously huge fans.
2: This show was particularly great. Devo played really long single note synth pulses for about 45 minutes. And by the time the show started, we were all in a trance. And then they came on and kicked ass. It was really a fantastic show.
1: Well, that's how Devo modified your music DNA.
2: Mr. Kamikaze, Mr. DNA, he's an altruistic pervert. Mr. DNA, Mr. Kamikaze, here to spread some genes. That's a Devo song. Uh,
1: okay. Well, I'll tell you what, Alan, you can serenade Jerry when we start our chat, but first- oh, I got to go, listen- go find my
2: garbage bag. I'll be right back.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, Alan is finding his swim goggles, listeners. Please follow us on Instagram at tmep show to see all the quirky stuff that Alan posts. In fact, he'll probably post that video. And- You can also check out some of our recent episodes, including our countdown of the top five Spinal Tap moments from Taylor Swift's Eras Tour with our new friend, Tay A. Eiler-Swift. Believe me, she has some opinions. But We'll be right back with Jerry Casale after a short break. Welcome to us talking about
3: our podcast for a minute. What's the name of that podcast? That's Axe to Grind. uh, And right now you're going to be getting a little... Um, all the little dorm room nonsense that you imagine from uh, niche music podcast that, that you either love, want to love, or hate.
1: Yeah, imagine all the
3: emotions that you have towards the genre that, that uh, has impacted your life, uh, and then condense them down to an hour to two hours a week. So triangulate your speakers, think about jumping off the bed, singing along, dancing like an idiot and listen to the grind podcast. Hey there, I'm Johnny Christ from Revenge Sevenfold, and I've got a podcast called Drinks with Johnny you're going to want to check out. I sit down with a bunch of different people from all different walks of life, from professional wrestlers to actors, comedians, fighters, musicians, Everything in between. I'm just looking to make some friends and have a good time doing it. So if that sounds like something you're into, go check out Drinks with Johnny, streaming everywhere now.
2: And now a man who recently became a father for the very first time at age 74, Jerry Casali. Jerry, this is such a pleasure for me. I'm a Devo fan from way back, and we have a mutual friend who's also a big Devo head. And he told me to say hi, Shepard Ferry. Oh, right. Shepard was on this podcast as well. And he and I agree that your recent song, I'm Gonna Pay You Back, is a return to form. I mean, <laughs> it's so good. And the video is unbelievable. I can't stop watching it. It's so cool.
0: Well, you know, I've been a fan of Davey Force for years. He's a great animator, way out guy. And working with him is fantastic. And I loved doing that kind of, Mashup of live action meets Marvel comic graphic art,
2: and the song's great. Well, um, it's an honest song that that'll. is of an honest song, an appropriate song. Yes. Yeah. So, anyways, we've had Tommy Stinson from The Replacements on, and Nancy Wilson from Heart, and both told us that when they saw Spinal Tap, it was at the nadir of their careers, and the movie was frankly too close to the bone. And then I saw this quote from Mark Mothersbaugh, your lead singer that said around 89 or 90, we did our last tour in Europe and it was kind of at that point, we were watching This Is Spinal Tap on the bus and said, oh my God, that's our life. And we just said, things have to change. So we kind of agreed from there that we wouldn't do live shows anymore. Did the movie really have that impact on Devo? It might've had that impact on
0: him. What year did that movie come out? 84. Yeah, I responded to it because I was huge film buff and making my little videos and doing whatever I could before I started directing commercials. And I thought that most comedies were not funny. It's like when I was a child, my parents would watch things like the honeymooners and laugh and I was horrified, right? Like Alice, I'm going to bash you straight to the moon. You know, and what Spinal Tap did was really smart people really smart writers, really smart director, really smart actors knew exactly how to act exquisitely stupid. I mean, they nailed the stupidity, the delusional people, the hypocrisy, the lack of self-awareness, the backstabbing, the horridness of the business. And each joke is absolutely on the money. And I was laughing till tears came out of my eyes The first time i saw it i could relate to it because it was what you said uh close to the bone or you know too close to the heart or whatever people say on the nose exactly it was they nailed it they got it absolutely right and that's why it holds up today it's timeless
1: yeah
2: there's a question about that i've kind of wrestled with we all identify it with it right it really captures the experience but there's the other end is the rock and roll lifestyle so narrow that it's easy to capture?
0: The rock and roll experience is just a microcosm of the human experience. And the human experience is one of supreme hypocrisy and betrayal and horror. And stupidity, frankly. I mean, that's the problem. Human beings truly are a flawed species. And that's what Devo was all about. I did not extract myself from that quotient. I said, we're all Devo. I wrote that. Line for Boogie Boy. And I meant it. I knew that we couldn't exempt ourselves. We were part of it. And I knew that eventually, yeah, the kind of three musketeers, one for all and all for one, and the bowl is more than the sum of its parts, would probably get bulldozed by the cult of personality. And these kind of people in this business, who again represent a microcosm of every business, appealing to egos. Dividing and conquering, you know, grabbing the lead singer and going, hey, you know, you don't need those guys. Go out on your own, right?
2: I could go out on my
0: own. You know, <laughs> uh, and, and then they do, and then nobody gives a shit, right? Right.
2: Well, we just talked to Stuart Copeland from The Police for a future episode, and he was telling us about how the band began as a collaboration, but it ended up becoming like a sting project in many ways. Sure. Then I remember having a conversation years back with Jerry Harrison from The Talking Heads where he lamented how David Byrne ended up getting all the credit for the success of the band. Right, right. It's kind of similar to what happened between you and Mark, right? Yeah, where that happened
0: was Shout, the album Shout. And it was the fork in the road. It was like until that time, Devo was a true collaboration. Mark and I would bring in everything we have been thinking of whether it was sketches or lyrics or musical fragments, riffs. And we would put them all on the table in front of the whole band and we'd talk about it and we'd see who was responding to what so that you're getting rid of what's not cool and developing what everybody thinks has creative validity. And that worked. And so those songs up until Shout were songs that all of us wanted on the record. We didn't pick one out and go, oh, that's the hit. Frankly, we were too involved in our own art bubble to understand how to do that. So we didn't put any song on a record that we didn't like. And that's what made it easy. So when a record company would go, there's your hit, we'd go, well, if you think so, (laughs) okay. you know, Because we liked every one of them. We wished any one of them could be a hit. The point was we weren't sitting around cynically trying to write hits. I don't even think Devo would have known how to do that. We were an art collective and we were making up these things that we were excited about that were original. And that's what people forget. Like we were being original when that wasn't a sin. In the culture and in the music landscape, they responded to originality. If you think about the late 70s to the early 80s, look at the true diversity of the music that was coming out from many, many groups that were truly, truly unique and would truly put out a body of work where if you put on the record, if you liked one song, you're going to like probably three or four or more of those songs because they were coming from a place aesthetically where the creativity was of a piece. It wasn't some cynical group of producers like going, okay, we're going to spend 200 million on this one song and the rest of it'll be shit but won't matter and here you go that wasn't happening yeah so what happened with shout was suddenly yeah i think personally you know and mark knows i think that he drank the Kool-Aid hmm. and i said i didn't like what was going on with these endless exp experiments he would write on these little floppy disks with the fairlight and we were up to experiment 189 and it was this completely solipsistic, wanky stuff that nobody in the band really could relate to. It was busy and silly. In fact, it was on its way to kids' cartoon music. And and it wasn't about Devo. There was nothing for Alan to do because Mark put all the program drums in the Fairlight. And there was no room for Bob Mothersbaugh to try playing guitar with his... Influence that dates back to classic rock and RB and blues, which I always thought really informed Devo really well. And Devo always had been funky in a way, you know, mm-hmm. like funky robots. We were tight and we weren't playing to click tracks. And yet we sounded like a machine without being controlled by machines. Right. And suddenly we were being controlled by machines. And the songs weren't compelling and they weren't digging back into the well of Devo and reinventing ourselves and going back to what we were and then coming out again is exactly what we should have done. And he just looked at me and said, well, if you don't like it, you can stay home. Mm. And I went, wow, wow. He's telling a guy that actually founded Devo and the guy that he wrote all the songs with, that I can stay home if I don't like it. That was amazing to me. Of course, his story is Oh, Jerry was doing cocaine. You know, it's like, oh, wow. Okay. ooh, Busted. But, you know, did I miss practices? Did I miss gigs? Did I miss meetings? No. And what was he doing? Tons of ecstasy. <laughs> Apparently ecstasy was okay. And cocaine was bad because once again, this is like some kind of value judgment hypocrisy. Like, well, the drugs I do and whacked out things I'm doing, that's okay. But what they're doing, no, because it, it's not something I do. And I think, unfortunately, I was vindicated, not that I ever wanted to be, but nobody liked Shout. You know, the public didn't like Shout. The record company was appalled by it, and they had just given us a new deal where Shout was the first album of a three-album new deal where they were giving us more money. And they quickly reneged on that. They said, well, this is not where we want you to go, so you know what? Here Takes this severance package. We'll pay you half the money that you were supposed to get for the next record for doing nothing. Take the money and it's over. And you can fight us, but our lawyers are on retainer and you're never going to win. Yeah. Uh, Elliot Roberts, our manager, said they're right. That's what's going to happen. And that was that.
2: Well, I think there's a couple things in there that are very interesting. One is just that a lot of lead men and bands don't appreciate the alchemy of the group.
0: Well, they lose sight of it.
2: They lose sight of it, yes. And also, I thought you guys were such a different band that didn't rely on synthesizers. You used them. use them in a brilliant way. Because I can remember back in the early 70s, whenever you heard a synthesizer, like on Steve Miller bands, Fly Like an Eagle, you'd go, wow, the future. But (laughs) when Devo used synthesizer, it was like, Oh, shit. The future. I mean, what you implied was the future with synthesizers and machines was not progress. It was going to be a regression. Correct. And I think that played out in the 80s, which I consider a toss-away decade because people were married to the machines, right? Not just the instrumentation, but also in the production. Right. But Diva wasn't like that. You guys were not a synth-pop band, especially those first three killer records yeah
0: we were able to play all that stuff and we were tight but we were a human machine we weren't just playing to machines that became boring it was not compelling and what happens is you're doing something of substance and you have ideas and the albums had themes and they had literary ideas in there and narrative ideas in there and then suddenly Style was all that Mark seemed to care about. So style took over and it all became about nothing. And then it all just became about him. Interesting. And that was not what Devo was about. And that's not why people like Devo. Right. Yeah. And he was never David Byrne on that level or never Sting because those guys did write all the songs. Rick Casick wrote all the songs. And yes, he had a group that made those songs palatable. It's like a film. You have to have a great director. You can't just have the writer. You have to have a great set of actors because they have to sell this idea. Right. Right. And that's what those groups were doing. Even if David Byrne did write all the songs or Sting did write all the songs, they wouldn't have sound and played that way. And they wouldn't have been hits without the guys that he was meshing with, fusing with.
1: That's like Spinal Tap and singer David St. Hubbins talking about when guitar player Nigel Tufnell quits.
0: (laughs) It's so good.
1: (laughs) I mean, basically, he's saying that this guy who, like you, is a founder of the band, is not any more important than the drummers that blew up on stage the night before.
0: Right. And you have handlers all around you. You have all these enablers and gatekeepers that, because they're afraid to tell the truth because they'll be let go, they indulge that. You know, they suck up to it. They kiss the ring and just make it worse, you know, because there's always people around that'll tell a guy like that what he wants to hear because it's like, oh, shit. okay, he's the head narcissist. Um, Whatever he wants, Ben, we want to keep this going. Right. I don't want to be severed from this business relationship. So, yeah, it's a joke.
1: Jerry, a lot of people probably don't know that you actually directed a lot of Devo's videos, and undoubtedly the most racy among them was Whip It, which has 21 million views and more than 10,000 comments on YouTube. It's absolutely a classic that is packed with symbolism,
0: yet definitely not politically correct by today's standards. Yeah, that was grandfathered in. I mean, a video like that would never be played today. It's just impossible. Right. Mark is... Whipping the clothes off of a woman of color in the corral while cowboys cheer. And that was our satire because we were horrified by the rise of Ronald Reagan and that he was going to be president. And he was empowering the evangelical right wing at that time and in, invoking this Americana mythology that never, in fact, existed. And, you know, there, there was that whole. Thing on TV during the summer that they put on there with him riding the horses on the range right, <laughs> with the mountains in the background in Santa Barbara. It was hokum, you know, complete propaganda. And so we were satirizing all that with Whipping. And we knew that radio already thought Whip was about masturbating or S&M sex.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: So that's why I had Mark whipping the clothes off of the woman in the corral, because I I had a vintage, stupid men's magazine from the 60s, because my friend John Zabruki and I, who was my best art buddy at Kent State University, he had moved out here to California and started a very important props company, Modern Props, that ended up doing all the futuristic props for all the sci-fi movies. You know, he would create them from scratch. He was a great designer. Anyway, he and I would go shopping in these kitschy secondhand stores and junk stores and bookstores found this dude magazine from 1962. (laughs) And it was about a stunt man from Hollywood who had married his stripper girlfriend, like a stripper from sunset strip. And they had left Hollywood and started a dude ranch in Arizona. (laughs) And as entertainment for the guests who paid to, to stay at the dude ranch, he would whip his wife's clothes off in the corral at noon. Oh, boy. And then it explained how he did that, where her clothes were really all put together with Velcro, and there was really no pain involved, in and <laughs> he was a professional. And
2: it, No it's animals were harmed it. during the shooting of this. There uh, you go. Yeah. Right.
0: Yeah. Right. And of course, they're all grinny. He's the dude cowboy. She's the stripper. And I was like, okay, there it is. This is what we're going to do. Wow. Because it was so low. It was low Devo. I
1: think I was probably 13, 14 when that song came out. and um, <laughs>
0: Perfect. <laughs> I, yeah,
1: absolutely perfect. I'm sure Whippet was being played the junior high dances
0: that I was going to,
1: right? <laughs> but I was curious, in the video, you don't have a
0: bass. No, I'm actually playing a mini on a stand playing the actual bass oh. part that I play.
1: Got it, got it, got and it. And okay. we're all
0: wearing the Jughead turtlenecks right. uh, that come up to here.
1: <laughs> but you know what's so interesting, Jerry, is I noticed the Cowboys are all holding Budweiser cans, right? Yes. Um, yeah. And I thought, fast forward 30 years, Budweiser would have been paid a fortune to have those beers present <laughs> in that video. But back then, yeah. not only is that a very non-Devo thing to do, but it'd be kind of creatively the kiss of death. Was it deliberate that Budweiser was the choice?
0: Well, Budweiser was the big brand then, and that was the big football brand, and we just thought it represented Americana. And as a matter of fact, that's the only thing that almost prevented that video from being shown on MTV, was that we were showing a product. And at that time, the world was upside down compared to the world you're talking about, where a band endorsing an alcoholic beverage would be God, right? It, it was like, no, you can't do that. Budweiser could sue us. And then we had to get permission. You got to remember the Asian girl who's cross-eyed talking about political incorrectness. Right. She's got the gun and she shoots the Budweiser can out of the cowboy's hand. And she's seeing a double image of him. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: You satired commercialization in art way back when. I mean, like one of my favorite songs of yours is Pink Pussycat, where Mark sings, I'm so stroffed, right? <laughs> of uh, Which is out of a toilet paper yeah, commercial, right? Straw. And <laughs> Right, right. But I mean, ultimately, Whippet played on a Swiffer commercial. <laughs> yeah, yes, it did. We, we couldn't believe that.
0: And we loved it because we thought if Debo would have proposed that, they would have said, get out of here. Yeah. Because it looked like something we would have tried to make people do for a video. And here was a huge company doing it on national TV. It made us laugh till tears came out of our eyes. Perfect.
2: Well, didn't Michael Jackson, when he got a hold of McCartney's catalog, then all of a sudden the Beatles stuff started appearing on commercials too, right?
0: Right. But without a sense of irony, like we were doing. Yeah. I remember when Freedom of Choice finally got used and they said, well, there was this one problem, and they go, what's that? They go, in the chorus, it says, he went in circles till he dropped dead. That's a bummer. We can't have that. <laughs> you, you got to change that line, or we can't use this in this car commercial.
2: <laughs> well, the lyrics are about a dog going in circles, then dropping dead, and dogs often get hit by cars, right? So it kind of works. Yeah. <laughs> Let's go back to Whip It for a second. One thing I didn't realize is that it's based on the Pretty Woman Roy Orbison lick, which I think is fascinating. That's true. And you guys were great at deconstructing songs. Like my favorite cover ever is Satisfaction. Mine too. Yeah, that's great. What what's so ingenious about Satisfaction is that you don't have the da, 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 da. you don't have the lick.
0: Well, we have the end of it. We have the end of it. Da-da-da. Oh. Da-da-da.
2: see that's fantastic!
0: Once again, that came spontaneously from a jam, where my brother started going do 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 very mechanically on his guitar using this three-string technique, and Alan Myers about a minute into it he starts putting this whacked-out drum beat that sounds like backwards reggae. And I started laughing, going, what the hell? Keep doing that. Keep doing that. And then I started to try to make up a baseline that I felt fit into the idea of backwards reggae. <laughs> so we had... And we had... And we didn't have any changes or anything. And we kept playing it. And Mark grabbed a microphone and started singing, paint it black over the top of <laughs> it. And it was forced... And so Bob Casale goes, wait a minute, wait a minute, sing Satisfaction. So Mark started singing Satisfaction over it, and we went, oh, keep doing that, that's incredible. And then Bob Mothersbaugh started going, dun, 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 dun. You know, just one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, over the top of this whacked out backwards reggae. Once we had that, we couldn't stop it. You know, we were laughing, we were happy, we just kept playing it until we made an arrangement and put the brakes in it and just thought, this is great. This song sounds like you can't get no satisfaction in reality, in substance. That is so cool.
2: So to get that played on the album, you had to play it for Jagger, right? Can you tell us wh- how that went? Yeah,
0: because back then what we did was considered parody because they thought we butchered the music. So... You had to play it for the songwriters, or a record company wouldn't put it on a record because they took intellectual property seriously. So Mark and I flew to New York, and we went to Peter Rudge's office near the Warwick Hotel in Midtown and waited for Mick, and we're in the sumptuous lawyer's office. You know, he's got the whole bogus look of the Englishman from the late 70s, the kind of like mullet hair with some... Moose in it, and sure, and he's got the three-piece Savile Row suit with a vest, chalk pinstriping, and a paisley tie, and a pink shirt with white collar and cuffs, like the worst kind of Gordon Gekko-y kind of thing going on. <laughs> and uh, you know, it's pretty spooky. And we're in there, and he's got these big brown overstuffed club chairs, and he's got a fireplace, and he's got this little cabinet with wine in it. You know, and Mick finally comes in and he looks pretty sleepy and it's the afternoon and he's obviously staying somewhere in the building because he doesn't have shoes on. (laughs) Classic. He's got socks and pinwheel corduroys and a velour turtleneck. And he's, you know, he's very polite and very personable and a little bit of introductions. And then Peter Reg goes, so Mick, would you like some claret? Mick says, yes, yes, I would like some claret. And he reaches in the cabinet and he pulls out a bottle of saint emilion and pours Mick a glass of Bordeaux and doesn't even ask us if we want anything. And he just assumes, oh, these spuds, it's too early for them to drink. <laughs> Fuck that. So. <laughs> so Mick sits down in the club chair and swirls his wine and he goes, all right, let's hear it then. And Mark stands up and puts the cassette in the boom box because that's what you did back then. And it starts. Then he's looking down and he's swirling his wine. And he's swirling his wine, and we think, "Oh God, he hates it." You know, he's not looking at us. He's not doing anything. He puts the wine down on the hardwood floor, stands up in his stocking feet, and starts dancing across in front of the fireplace like Mick Jagger, <laughs> like Mick Jagger moves, like the rooster thing. Yeah, and uh, he turns, you know, spins on his socks because the floor is nice and hardwood slippery and he goes
3: i like it i like it
0: <laughs> that is so great so we were all like ted and bill's great adventure you know like Whoa, oh, we're not worthy oh my god <laughs> so we flew back go into elliot roberts our manager's office on monday morning all elated want to tell him the good news and of course he's already known you know peter rudge has called him and sure. all through the horn with the executives and he goes yeah 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 he goes you know look, guys, I told Peter to tell Mick before you ever got there that Mick should come in and say he liked it because you're going to make him a ton of money because they're not giving up any of the publishing on this song just because the music's different. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So it was like one of those deflating, like, here's the business, pal, you (sighs) dumb little shits. (laughs) Uh, It's so wild.
1: Jerry, where did you say that you met with Peter and Mick?
0: In his offices that were near the Warwick Hotel in Midtown.
1: Yeah, the Warwick is where my twin daughters were conceived.
0: Okay. Oh, oh that was a that was a big big music hotel. We all yeah. been through the Warwick. In fact, if you were at the Warwick back then, you had made it. That was a sign that you were going up.
2: And you got satisfaction, Alex.
1: <laughs> yeah, you did
0: at the yeah.
2: Warwick. Got some satisfaction. Yep.
3: For a head-bangingly good time, dive into the world of heavy metal with the Brutally Delicious podcast. Here, we don't just talk music, we welcome you into our heavy metal family. Join us for candid chats with legends and rising stars. We go beyond the typical interviews, exploring raw emotions and the life-altering impact of heavy metal. So whether you're a diehard metalhead or just curious, join our family and let the headbanging begin with the Brutally Delicious podcast. Come join us. We're having a lot of fun. Thanks for checking it out.
2: Your favorite album is Diamond Dogs by David Bowie. David Bowie is also my favorite artist, and he loved Devo. Yep. Can you just tell us your relationship with Bowie? Because your hero being a fan of yours, I just can't even imagine.
0: Yeah, it was an ultimate moment of vindication because here you are like four years earlier seeing David Bowie in Cleveland, Ohio, doing the Diamond Dogs tour, being in awe, being so gobsmacked that you feel like maybe you should quit because this guy's so far ahead of you and anything you think is good about what you're trying to do right then and there in your little basement is like, you better go back to the drawing board because you've just seen somebody raise the bar so high that you realize, oh, I'm not even serious yet. Mm -hmm. Here's God. That's what I saw. And here it is like, Three years later, after I saw that, he's saying he's going to produce us. And Mark and I spent two evenings with him in New York City. And you're totally vindicated. In other words, you don't care if most of the people that are creepy that you hate, hate your music. That's good. That just makes you stronger. It's like, oh, oh, those guys hate me. I'm going to keep doing this, right? But if David Bowie had poo-pooed us and... Brian Eno, you know, you would have been crestfallen and possibly just given up. But the opposite happened. And here's your heroes that you respect artistically, liking what you do. And that is the greatest thing in the world. That was worth so much more than any amount of money from a record company or anything else. That did it. Iggy Pop loved you too, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We met Iggy. He was opening for uh, Blondie. Cool. And we met him in 77 at the uh, Agora in Cleveland, Ohio. The legendary Agora. And uh, it was just great. And then, of course, we stayed in touch with him. And he came to see us when we got to California, and we played the Starwood. And he came with Tony Basil and uh, Dean Stockwell. (laughs) And we hung out all night long. And then he invited us out to his rented bungalow on the beach on pch in malibu he was playing us lust for life at a volume that was so deafening he had basically speakers that could have filled a club in this bungalow (laughs) in fact the cops showed up
2: (laughs) we were just talking to hunt sales and i think hunt played on lust for life
0: it's a great track
2: yeah
1: Because of our influence on this show, we start every episode with Hello Cleveland, right? Mm-hmm. Given that that's your hometown, and then it's always interesting to come back where, you know, may have been accepted or maybe been rejected yeah. early on. So, can you share a spinal tap moment of going back to Cleveland?
0: Well, you know, what's not even funny and actually predictable is we were not hometown favorites. We are not homespun kind of guys, you know, taking pictures of us with our dogs and our wives. It wasn't about that at all, as you know this conceptual pose, you know, this whole manifesto. We were hated. Okay. <laughs> we were hated. There were people that wanted to beat us up. Yeah. There were other people that just felt sorry for us and thought these poor fucks, they had us quit doing this. And other people would just laugh at us derisively. So the last place that we were ever accepted is our hometown is Northeastern Ohio. And it didn't happen until after the freedom of choice record, because What they respected there was commercial success. Like, oh, okay, these weirdos are okay now because they're successful. So we better get behind them. Mm
3: -hmm.
0: But still, the Spinal Tap moment. Now we're getting big offers to play in Cleveland, and we're going to play the Cleveland Auditorium, and we come back from the Freedom of Choice tour on the heels of this national hit of Whippet, and we're playing the Cleveland Auditorium, It's 1981, we have that really elaborate show with the treadmills, right? and we have a crew off stage that operates them, making them go backwards, forwards, slow, fast, stopping when we need to. Like, we rehearsed this tour for a month in LA, okay? So this is like Spinal Tap and the Pods,
3: right?
0: (laughs) So we have the treadmills, and we have this Greek fast food temple facade that's- backlit. Treadmills are built into it. And our opening of the show, we're showing the videos and the last video shown seamlessly segues into the pulse line of going under from the New Traditionalist album. And as the screen is lifted, there we are on the treadmills in formation, right? Now, how did we get on stage? Well, wherever we had a proscenium arch stage. So they had trap doors and they had tunnels underneath the stage. And we got used to that. So while the films were playing, we would come up through the trap door <laughs> and then the lights would hit us and we're on the treadmills, right? Like, all right, you know, <laughs> big showtime. Well, the unions hated bands like Devo. They look oh, at these no. guys with short cropped hair, with these. Japanese gray outfits on with short sleeves and plastic hair, <laughs> right? And so we rehearsed this thing during the afternoon and there's underneath the stage a series of arrows and signs like this way to the trapdoor, right? And it's a labyrinth. And on purpose, these fuckers between <laughs> the rehearsal and the live show they changed the signs. Oh boy. Because these guys are like, they're Reaganites, right? They hate us. And it worked. <laughs> we're down there, and we start hearing that we're like 10 seconds from the audio cue where we got to be on the treadmills, and we're trapped, and we've gone, followed the arrows, and it's a dead end. Oh <laughs> boy. And we're all screaming, and these fuckers are laughing like this, right? And finally, one stage hand points the opposite direction. Oh, and sure God. enough, we run and we're late. And the treadmills are running and the sequencers <laughs> are playing. But where they're playing is we're already into the composition.
3: <laughs> <laughs> so
0: it, it was completely embarrassing. Completely Spinal Tap all the way. And I think there's something in Spinal Tap where they get caught under the stage, right? In Cleveland, yeah. There you go. Yeah, and, and that's why we laughed so hard when we saw it. It was like, yep exactly what happened. It's really true to form. And obviously, we weren't the first group that these guys did it to.
1: Wow. That's an epic story, Jerry.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It was horrible. You know what that felt like. You're humiliated.
2: Jerry, I think you and I have similar comedic sensibilities, for better or worse. I shot a pilot in Los Angeles back in 2006 called Grounds Zero, which you can find on Vimeo, about a coffee shop that had that name before 9-11 and wouldn't change it because if they did, the owner says, (laughs) the terrorists would win. Oh, boy. And I know that you went even further and had a 9-11-themed wedding. What the hell is that about? Well...
0: Again, believe it or not, it wasn't a big premeditated plan. What happened was the last date that was available in Beverly Hills before we had to reapply for a marriage license was 9-11. And if we didn't do that, then we had to reapply and wait months. And neither of us wanted to do that because of things coming up and promises we made. So we found this out about three weeks before we had to do it. And a couple of my smart ass friends said, listen, (laughs) you know, we know you're short on funds right now. We're going to take care of the cake and we're going to take care of the dinner, engagement dinner, and we'll do it at Michael's restaurant upstairs. And we get there and the party favors at each place were box cutters. Oh boy. And I'm going, oh shit, okay. Thanks, guys. Ha ha, box cutters. And then the dinner goes well. And of course, it's Michael's. It's great food. And I'm friends with those people since 1979. And we retire to the patio with dessert. And these guys roll out Twin Tower cakes.
2: Oh no. Chocolate cakes
0: as Twin Towers. And There is a replica of Krista's head on one and a replica of my head on the other. And there's a banner that says the Twin Towers of Love. (laughs) Oh, no. And of course, we have big stupid grins on our faces like, oh, yeah, you you know, (laughs) we could take a joke. And there was one staff person there. We never will know who, right? Our friends were taking pictures, but so was this person. And she goes right to TMZ with the stuff. Oh, boy. So she's got a picture of the box cutter favors, and she's got a picture of us grinning and cutting the Twin Tower cake. Wow. Whoa. So, you know, I was made to look like a really bad guy.
2: They didn't serve as an appetizer, Ben Latkes, did they? No. Phew. No. Thank goodness for that. That is such a L.A. Hollywood
1: thing to do is to like yeah. just snoop into that stuff. Crazy.
2: Right, I had a sketch show at Second City in Chicago, and it was right after 9-11. And one of my sketches was uh, Leave it to Beaver parody, but using a suicide bomber from the West Bank. <laughs> oh, and the, the parents are worried that he comes home safe and sound. And when he comes home, he had forgotten. And they say, do you know what time it is? And he opened his coat and he had a bomb vest. He goes, oh, that's <laughs> how he knew what time <laughs> it was. <laughs> so on a rehearsal day, and this is January, 2002. And I have the bomb prop on my passenger seat of my car in front of Second City. I took a U-turn and the police pulled up. And at the last second, I threw my coat over the bomb prop because I would have shut down all of downtown Chicago. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes. You could have been dead. I would have been the same boat as you, Jerry. So we often go to the
1: community on Reddit to ask questions because every interesting topic has a community of enthusiasts and Devo is no exception. (laughs) So I asked, what question should I ask Jerry about his final tap moments? And MC Palmface 69 said, ask him about Johnny Rotten trying to join Devo in Jamaica. Right. And then Schmilson1 responded that you actually weren't there, but he said- That's right. He did talk with Lydon when they met not long ago So, what did Johnny Rotten say to you?
0: When we met at Cruel World, I brought it up, and I said, I wasn't there. Did that really happen the way they said? And he goes,
3: no, mate, I wasn't in the next room. I didn't know what was going on.
0: So, he denied it all. (laughs) But the way Richard Branson presented it to my brother and Mark Mothersbaugh was that John Lydon was there, ready to join, and that in an adjacent suite, there was Melody Maker, and new music express and they were ready to take pictures and do the article right and this is after he's given my brother and mark copious amounts of jamaican weed to smoke (laughs) and they're stoned almost to the point of being nauseous because they weren't used to that right and mark thought he was joking so mark kept like sheepishly laughing like oh come on right and uh, according to my brother branson was getting more and more kind of irritated and flustered because it was true. He wanted this to happen. And luckily Mark had enough loyalty to the concept and the cause and the vision that he didn't go for it. And I think it was just because he already had enough of a lead singer-itis that he thought, fuck if I'm gonna like just play keyboards and let Johnny Rotten sing, you know, (laughs) that's not gonna happen. So it didn't happen, but it was attempted. Johnny Rotten was there somewhere, but he was supposedly not aware of Richard's plan.
1: Oh, that's so interesting! And just to be clear, is it to actually have Johnny join the band as a permanent member, or was it just
2: for one performance?
0: No, it was to be the lead singer. Johnny Rotten was going to join
1: Devo. Got it, got it. Like so full on, yeah. right?
2: And I like lead singeritis. That's a nice <laughs> term that we we should be able to use forever. I've oh, had that yeah, before. Yeah. I have to admit, you still do.
0: Well, everybody's had it, I think.
2: Yes. Our listeners would like to know where they can find out information about you, what you're promoting, what you're doing, because you're doing a lot of fascinating stuff, I know.
0: Yeah, I mean, I did just come out with that lounge version of I'm Going to Pay You Back, where I shot a experimental video with the people at 4D. These are the people that create... Immersive metaverse experiences and all the data is there that can be converted to the visual experience. But right now, all you see, is a kind of a facsimile, a teaser. It's a pass through, like if you were a drone and you could navigate this space during the song. This shows one possible navigation. Interesting. But what's really going to happen when these people finally commit their resources and money to finishing the project is you will go into this club and there will be other people there and you will move through the club, go wherever you want, whenever you want. I mean, you can walk right up to me singing and be six inches from my face, you know.
2: Oh, is this VR?
0: Yeah, it will be Oculus headset, yeah. That's the new thing I just did. And I hope I don't disappoint. I don't think you will, Jerry, based on this conversation. (laughs) That's
1: something to look forward to.
2: All right, well, great. Well, this has been fantastic.
1: Yeah, yeah, really a lot of fun. Listeners, the timing of this episode is intriguing. We're dropping it on January 22nd, 2024, the day that Devo is performing live at the Sundance Film Festival following the premiere of the documentary film by Chris Smith called simply Devo. Some of Jerry's stories might have led you and us to believe that a reunion with Mark Mothersbaugh was an impossibility, kind of like when Don Henley famously said that any potential Eagles reunion would only happen when hell freezes over. Then, of course, 14 years later, it did. In any case, here at the TMEP show, we are delighted that Jerry and Mark are on stage together again with the other members of Devo and have Sundance jerking back and forth. We're rooting for you guys. And we'd like to thank Josh Mills at It's Alive Media and Jeff Winner from Three Willow Park for bringing Jerry to our show. Too Much Effing Perspective is a Milwaukee Talkies original. Our editor is Gretchen Kilby. Our music composer is J.K. Harrison. Please follow us on Instagram at TMEPShow. Visit our website at TMEPShow.com to sign up for our mailing list. And find other episodes featuring rock stars, comedians, entertainment luminaries, and others whose bizarro stories we enjoy and we think you will too on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen.
2: Although it would be as great as having armadillos in our trousers, this podcast is not affiliated with This Is Spinal Tap, and no person or entity connected with the film has sponsored or endorsed its content. This podcast is not affiliated, sponsored, or licensed by Authorized Spinal Tap LLC or Century of Progress Productions.
3: Ready for a head-bangingly good time? dive into the world of heavy metal with the brutally delicious podcast here we don't just talk music we welcome you into our heavy metal family join us for candid chats with legends and rising stars we go beyond the typical interviews exploring raw emotions and the life-altering impact of heavy metal so whether you're a diehard metal head or just curious join our family and let the headbanging begin with the brutally delicious podcast
1: Evergreen Podcast Network.